My name is Jeff Killeen. Uh, presently, I'm 68 years old. I was born and raised in Pittsburgh in the South Hills area in Mount Lebanon. Uh, after high school at Mount Lebanon High School, uh, I attended uh, Grove City College. Uh, I graduated there in 1974. I majored in uh, German and concentrated on secondary education. And uh, after college, I was a high school teacher and coach in Armstrong County for about four years. Uh, subsequent to that, I served as a paramedic and um, EMT instructor as well. And in, uh, I, I worked for a medical rescue team in the South Hills of Pittsburgh until uh, I went back to law school, something I always wanted to do, but I, was, uh, I had some family issues that uh, prevented me from doing that at the time. Uh, but I finally did go back to law school. And while I was there, um, I was recruited by the special agent in charge of the FBI's Pittsburgh division. Um, I graduated from law school, took the bar exam in uh, 1984, and then entered on duty uh, with the FBI on September 16, uh, 1984. After training, uh, which lasted between four and five months. Uh, I was first assigned to the Minneapolis Division of the FBI, uh, working general criminal matters as well as uh, concentration in civil rights investigations, uh, especially those involving police departments. I also had a concentration of investigations in uh, foreign counterintelligence. Uh, I was transferred then to the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California. It's part of our San Francisco division, but it's part of the Department of Defense, um, that school. And I was uh, there for the School of Russian Language for about one year. Uh, language is kind of, kind of easy to me. Uh, that's why I majored in German. And uh, I also had taken some Russian in high school. So they sent me to the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California. I was there for, for training and graduated there and went to the FBI's New York office where I worked uh, predominantly Soviet foreign counterintelligence matters back then, Russians. Uh, I was then transferred to the office of the general counsel in uh, FBI headquarters in Washington, DC. Uh, there, I, I mostly worked as a trial attorney in civil matters and I became a unit chief uh, before being transferred to uh, the Pittsburgh Division as the Chief Division Counsel and Supervisory Special Agent uh, in, in that division. And I handled all aspects of legal office uh, operations, field office operations. Um, I represented the FBI and the Department of Justice in select cases. I supervised the staff of paralegals. I served a time for, as, as a time for, uh, as a squad supervisor. Uh, I shared media responsibilities, and I also provided legal training. The Pittsburgh Division um, covered what was called the the, uh, the Western District of Pennsylvania, and uh, there's three judicial districts in Pennsylvania. There's uh, Western, Middle, and, and Eastern. So Eastern and Middle were, were under the, the Philadelphia Division, and that would be like east of Altoona. And, uh, for example, State College was covered by uh, the Philadelphia Division, but we covered all of the Western District of Pennsylvania, and there are two judicial districts in, in West Virginia, Northern and Southern, so we covered all of West Virginia. So we had one major office there, 
and we had uh, 10 what we call resident agencies or satellite offices in that division. Our life prior to 9-11 was, was a lot different. We, there was a focus on healthcare uh, fraud, um, especially Medicaid fraud that, that was a, a big thing in the 90s. There was a lot of white collar crime that we, we dealt with. Uh, computer crimes were just in their infancy then. Um, uh, but uh, we, we, we had our fair share of, of uh, violent crimes, uh, from bank robberies to uh, gang activity. We had pretty much a full plate of everything that, that was going on. You know, we had a counterintelligence squad, and, and we had some, uh, a couple of agents who were involved in uh, counterterrorism as well. Um, but uh, leading up to 9-11, that, that was pretty much how things happened. On 9-11, one of my responsibilities was to provide legal training. And uh, I remember September 11th very well, of course. Uh, everything is very clear in my mind like it happened yesterday. Uh, I had traveled from the Pittsburgh Division uh, field office to our Erie resident agency. We had a satellite office there. Um, and it's about 100 miles north of Pittsburgh, uh, right on the lake. Uh, and I was there to provide what we call back to basics training uh, that was mandated by FBI headquarters after the conclusion of the Oklahoma City bombing case. Uh, there were a few uh, loose ends that um, uh, in that case that the, the agency needed to adjust to make sure that everybody was on the same page. So we had training there and we had about 15 agents and task force officers uh, from local and state uh, police uh, at that training uh, who had worked with us. So uh, I had traveled there with two other agents. Uh, the assistant special agent in charge, his name is Roland Corvington and Bill Crowley, uh, who is also a media uh, liaison person as well as a field agent. And uh, he also handled some of the legal uh, things that I would handle as well. So we backed each other up. And so we commenced the training. I commenced the training. I was doing the bulk of it that day. And uh, one of the agents uh, who was at the training, out of the corner of his eye, uh, he noticed media coverage of a plane hitting the North Tower uh, of the World Trade Center. And uh, he saw that on a small monitor in the office that was used for both operationally and uh, uh, we also could, he could also use it for uh, you know, newscasts or uh, whatever he, he wanted to watch uh, on regular television. So, but it was, it was um, he noticed that. And then he, he made a remark, he made a remark to the, the session there. And we stopped for a moment um, and I, I've worked in the New York office for a number of years, and, and I knew that major aircraft don't fly over Manhattan very low, not at all, uh, but you do have smaller aircraft that would fly over uh, Manhattan and Brooklyn and the other boroughs. And uh, my, my, my gut reaction was, well, okay, one, a small plane must have hit the, the North Tower. And I figured it was a sightseeing aircraft who was overwhelmed with the view, or uh, perhaps there was pilot uh, medical distress uh, and lost control or something like that. So uh, we continued the training, and then within minutes, uh, the second plane hit. And then we all knew we had a problem. Initially, we all knew what happened, but we didn't know the how and the why. 
So I immediately um, stopped the training there when we uh, had a quick discussion. And I received orders uh, to travel back to our Pittsburgh Field Division office as fast as possible. So uh, I, I got in my car as, as well as uh, the other two agents that had traveled there with me. They got in theirs and we, we started down Interstate 79, which connected uh, Pittsburgh and Erie. It's a straight shot north and south. So we headed southbound. And um, en route to Pittsburgh, I had, I had tuned in uh, National Public Radio because that's the one station that was uh, that I could get between Erie and Pittsburgh. It would switch maybe stations or something, but I could always get a signal. So over uh, National Public Radio or NPR, I heard that the Pentagon had been hit as well. And then uh, a few minutes later, I heard that a fourth plane was down near Somerset, Pennsylvania, which is in Pittsburgh Division territory. And at that time, I knew that uh, I would be very, very busy along with all the agents and staff in, in our division. So it took a little over an hour return to return. It's about a two hour drive. So we were driving quite quickly. And the interesting thing that I, I remember distinctly is that I was heading southbound and there was northbound traffic that I could see coming out of Pittsburgh. And the northbound lanes were packed with cars leaving the city. And the southbound lanes were virtually empty. So I, I had a straight shot, which was good, but I, I'd never seen that before, like in yeah. mid or late morning. And it was it was a remarkable sight just to see that. And um, and I knew that there was there is great concern, and this has been broadcast everywhere, and people were were really taking cover and getting home and, and getting away from the city because cities were being hit. And so at the federal courthouse where our office is located, uh, I saw United States Marshals who I'd worked with before, and um, they're outside of the building guarding guarding it with AR-15 rifles and body armor. And that's another site that you just don't see every day. Yeah. Uh, so there was concern of the security of that office. Um, so the office is actually located at that time in the federal uh, courthouse and post office on Grant Street. Uh, we were in the process of moving to the south side, but that was obviously um, delayed for a while while we got our feet on the ground with uh, this case. Um, and at the Pittsburgh office, I received orders to travel to the crash site and handle all media inquiries. Um, I had done the media for a number of years there and shared uh, the responsibility there with um, a couple of different agents. And uh, that was my my assignment. So. I switched vehicles. The one that I took to Erie was uh, it was very well overheated, uh, and it was uh, from high speed driving, and it was also out of gas. So um, uh, I switched vehicles and to another um, FBI vehicle, and then I proceeded to the site. I, I drove uh, by way of the turnpike and uh, got off the Somerset exit, and then I weaved my way back to the crash site scene. There are a lot of state police that were very helpful to get us back there because it was in a, a secluded rural area. So once I arrived, I, I met with a couple of the agents on the scene. Uh, and then I took time personally to survey the, the crash site. And um, it was on an abandoned uh, reclaimed strip mine. Strip, strip mining is when 
seams of coal are are not mined through through tunnels, but uh, they remove the the topsoil and expose the seam and then uh, take the coal there. But this is an old uh, reclaimed strip mine, so it was no longer a mine; it had been reclaimed, and uh, it was just a this large open field. And the impact site was this huge ditch with soil piled very high in front of it, at like 10 or 20 feet. And it was in front of a tree line uh, where trees had been toppled and burned. And I saw nothing that resembled an aircraft or even aircraft parts, just debris of sorts and soil. And there were no crash victims to be seen. Uh, so it, it, it occurred to me that this is one momentous impact and no one could survive this. So what I remember distinctly was how quiet it was. I mean, it was eerily quiet and not many people had, had arrived there to begin uh, the work on the scene. Um, of course, there were there were a number of state police and, and other officials there, fire officials and the like. Um, but aircraft, especially a 757 like Flight 93, and I've been on many of those, uh, they're so large and loud. And this one just simply ceased to exist. Uh, there, there's, and there was nothing to hear. It was just eerily quiet at that scene. And I also distinctly remember the smell of the site. Uh, and it smelled like freshly turned soil, which there was. Um, burnt jet fuel, like burnt plastic smell, and burnt wood, like a burnt pine wood, which has its own distinctive smell. And but th th that combination of the smell was uh, very distinctive uh, and something I've never smelled before, obviously, and hopefully never again. Uh, and the site was a poisonous chemical hazard as well as a biohazard from the deceased occupants of the aircraft. So uh, I didn't linger there. Um, and after I did this, uh, this quick survey, I tried to ga gather as much information as I could from first responders, uh, FBI agents uh, that were there, uh, Pennsylvania State Police who responded in mass to the scene to provide security and, and help in any way they could. Um, and from that information, I was preparing my thoughts for a press briefing later that day. And what I could relay to the media was very limited. Uh, the FBI was pretty tight-lipped about uh, investigations anyway, uh, but I just had to limit it, uh, the comments to what was obvious. You know, a plane went down, it crashed. Uh, no occupants of the plane survived, and the FBI was treating the site as a crime scene. And in mid, about mid-afternoon, uh, I heard that then Governor Tom Ridge would arrive to view the scene and brief the press. Um, and he did arrive, I think, by uh, a CH-47 helicopter. Um, it was a military-style helicopter, and he arrived there with uh, a couple of his staff. Uh, and also, I believe, the uh, commissioner of the Pennsylvania State Police. So when he arrived, I, I, I met with him very briefly, and I, I briefed him on what was known at the time, which really wasn't that much. Everything was in its infancy. And I also told him that the FBI would be treating this site as a crime scene. So about a mile from the crash site, a press briefing area had been established. Um, 
So I reported there along with another agent. It was Roland Corvington, who we were together in, in Erie, and, and he'd responded to the scene as well. He was the assistant special agent in charge of the division at that time. Uh, so uh, the press briefing area was about a mile away from the actual impact site, and it was out of sight. The, the um, impact site was out of sight of everyone, and no one was allowed to get there. Uh, there was just too much, uh, too much uh, potential evidence around the site. So uh, what I remember distinctly about the press area uh, at the press gathering um, was the number of reporters and photographers who were there. And, and I had given quite a few press conferences and interviews before with the with the FBI and some in front of, you know, six or maybe even eight uh, television cameras. But I couldn't even count how many. There had to be at least 20. I, I was guessing at least 20 cameras uh, mm -hmm. that were focused in on, on this press uh, conference. Plus, there was this. There are many, many, there are dozens, dozens of of reporters and other photographers, you know, still photographers and the like. And major news outlets and newspapers were all represented. So the press briefing began. Uh, Governor Ridge addressed the, the press first. And um, you know he provided uh, his his talk and and uh, his views about you know uh, how it affected the Commonwealth and the country. And then I addressed the uh, the press after that. My my comments uh, were very limited to what the FBI officially knew. And again, the FBI is very tight-lipped about investigations, and um, you know, we we cannot speculate. Uh, we could just uh, you know, convey facts really and. Uh, the facts we knew at that time were were limited. So, again, the plane had crashed. Uh, no passengers or crew survived, and that the scene was being treated as a crime scene, and that the FBI would process the scene. I mean, it was it was pretty obvious that all of these four crashes, all of these four aircraft were related. But again, I I kept my comments to to the obvious. And I also made sure to mention. I mean, there's there's people who died there. It's a mass murder. I also made sure to mention that our efforts uh, would include the respectful and dignified handling of the remains of those who were on that aircraft. And I also mentioned uh, that logistical operations at the scene uh, had commenced and would go forward. Agent Corvington and I uh, fielded questions as best we could uh, with the limited information we were allowed to convey. And after the press conference, I circled back uh, with the agents uh, next to the crash site, and we had established a uh, very quickly a uh, uh, man post that was uh, not directly adjacent, but very close to the uh, the crash site on the knoll of the, of the hill. And um, I circled back with them uh, to you know discuss you know next steps and uh, try to figure out how we're going to go from there. And everything was already in, in motion, evidence response teams, those are our specialized people who gather and collect evidence and process scenes like this uh, had already arrived and more were coming. And then logistics uh, had started. As far as logistics, uh, a helicopter had just flown in and, and landed very close to us and brought in huge, huge pallets of water and the bottled water. And that was just for the, the people who were gonna be working at the scenes. So. Uh, that struck me that you know this is going to be a long-term operation to take this thing apart and find out what happened and gather whatever we could from an evidence perspective. 
we had evidence response teams from multiple divisions. Each each field office, there are 56 field offices of the FBI, and each of those field offices had one or more evidence response teams. And these were people who were you know, agents and others who were specially trained to process crime scenes. So I know that the evidence response teams uh, directly on the East Coast were uh, like New York, Newark, uh, Boston, I'm sure, and Washington, D.C., obviously. Uh, those teams were, were busy at work processing those scenes. Uh, so uh, other uh, divisions contributed to our uh, division as well. And after, I, I think, at least 100 I'm guessing at least 100 agents responded okay. and others to process that scene. And it took weeks. I, I believe it took about six weeks to clear it. And uh, they got great evidence out of that. I mean, they, they got evidence that uh, I think one of the passports of one of the, the uh, hijackers. And they, they also got weapons, at least one weapon that we believe was used you know, to uh, attack the crew. I, I believe we got one of the notes that... Uh, step-by-step step of how to you know, take this aircraft and crash it into a building. Um, and uh, you know, the evidence they got out of there was, was remarkable. Uh, later that night, uh, as everything turned into darkness, I, I uh, received orders to report back to the FBI office in Pittsburgh. Another agent, uh, Bill Crowley, who, again, he was one of the other agents I had responded to, Erie, uh, uh, early in the day on our training mission, which was cut short, uh, he was sent to uh, handle media relations at the site. So I left the scene and headed back to the office. And uh, my assignment there was to address aspects of the overall 9-11 uh, investigation, uh, all the events that day and other potential threats. Uh, what was also remarkable is that when I was in Pittsburgh, um, the big deal was get those black boxes, and they're not black, they're orange, so they could show up. And I believe they're found about 30 feet down. I mean, the, the aircraft was going down at such a high rate of speed, uh, but the uh, the black boxes were found. Uh, they couldn't open the black box. It was so mangled. Uh, that's how fast the, the plane was going. So they, they had to take the, uh, the black box or black, black boxes and uh, shipped them over to the manufacturer, I believe, in Oregon. So uh, I believe at least one agent and another person, another FBI person, uh, uh, took this personally and flew it out there and uh, so that they could take apart the black box and get the data from it. And the data was, was pretty remarkable. Uh, I remember when, they, when it came into the office and I was uh, privy to it, um, and uh, what, what I noticed is there is a lot of stick movement. I mean, there is at, at the very end, uh, whatever those those passengers were doing on board, I mean, they're taking it to them. They're getting after it. And I said, good for them. I mean, that's uh, it showed me you attack America. We'll attack you right back. Good luck. Um, so, I mean, to me, it was it was it was you know, heartening to see that. Uh, but it was disheartening as well to see how fast that aircraft was going. It was, I don't know, almost 600 miles an hour when it hit. Uh, so everything was just instantly fragmented in there, the aircraft and everybody in it. So it was, uh, it was difficult.
there are several hotbeds of Islamic fundamentalism throughout the country, including, for example, obviously New York and Detroit and other areas. But the 9-11 Commission report noted that uh, Pittsburgh had a fundamentalist connection. So my attention was directed away from the site and more investigatively. And I mean, I can't uh, really go into what I investigated or helped to investigate at that time uh, because all of that remains classified. I did return to the crash site after several weeks. I had legal aspects that I had to handle with the crash site, for example, uh, trying to arrange for presumptive death certificates for the uh, passengers aboard that aircraft. I mean, they they could not get uh, the families and survivors of the uh, the deceased could not go, go forward without confirmation that there was there was uh, a death. So uh, I assisted in that process and and also transferring the the aircraft back to uh, the insurance carrier for United Airlines. Uh, there are, there are things that I had to do on site. So I, I did return uh, after several weeks uh, to the site. Um, so. It had to be that I was there the very same day that relatives of some of the passengers were taken to uh, the scene uh, as close as possible to the, that they could get. It was less than a quarter mile uh, on top of the hill near our command post that, that had been established. And I stood by the bus uh, as uh, they offloaded uh, their friends and family of victims there. and. Um, I, I distinctly call the mother of one of the victims exited the bus to to look at the scene and and survey what happened. And uh, this person was a broken human being. That's uh, the best I could describe her. Um, she was just so terribly overwhelmed with grief. And it was just a horrible, sad thing to see her gaze at the site and just break down and weep. And just she just. She didn't stop. It was it was uh, it was a horrible thing to see. And up to that point in time, uh, to me and I think to others, the case was very objective and clinical. Okay, and, and that's how we're trained. That's how we work. But after that, things became a little bit more personal for me. And first, I was so very very sad for the family and friends of those victims. And you know, seeing that up close you get a flavor of it. And then I also felt pent up raw anger at those who murdered the passengers and crew at this site and those of the others. And and uh, and I still feel that now. I still feel sadness for those those poor people who lost so much. And then uh, and I still feel anger for those people who did this. I mean, you, after a while you process it, but you never forget it. So uh, and what's also disturbing, uh, if I could mention this, is that uh, many agents and others who responded to this and the other scenes in New York and Washington uh, became ill or died as a result of those attacks. Uh, I mean, the, the Center for De- Disease Control definitely made findings of that. And so far, um, and I, I just checked the, uh, the website for um, you know, deceased people, that uh, deceased agents and others, and 17 FBI personnel, mostly agents, have died so far as a result uh, of their exposure to either Flight 93 or um, the other sites. 
So uh, two were from my division, two were my friends. One was Paul Wilson, who was assigned to the Johnstown Resident Agency, which is, uh, he was one of the very first agents and responders there. Um, And uh, uh, we had worked together in New York uh, and I'd known him for quite some time and, and he died you know, years afterward. And the other uh, agent there was Bob Craig, uh, who's, uh, he was an evidence response team leader. And um, I mean, he was a legend. He was just an absolute legend in evidence response. He was uh, a walking dictionary about how to do it. And he had responded to uh, scenes at Kosovo and other, uh, I believe, 427. And uh, he he was a superstar in this, in this field. Uh, of evidence collection. And he was a good guy and he's just, uh, he was, and he died as well. So it's, to me, the, it's the number of victims on the, on, the, on the ground. Yeah, we had those. We had the people who were uh, uh, in the aircraft, uh, all four aircraft, they obviously perished. But the murder, the, ki- the murdering, the killing really continued in a really subtle form. I mean, many people in New York, especially, uh, as well as in, in uh, DC and then in this crash site as well. So really the con- the killing continued. And um, most of us who responded to that uh, scene uh, have been registered with the World Trade Center Health Program and they monitor us, you know, on a yearly basis, you know, to see how we're doing uh, medically and to see if there's any, uh, any you know, disease processes that are resulting from that exposure. So to me, I mean, if I could sum it, I was honored and humbled to respond on scene and serve with all of my fellow agents there and the others, the Pennsylvania State Police, uh, everybody that was there. Uh, there too many to mention. Uh, and, and to me, the agents I served with in, in Pittsburgh are some of the best Americans that I know. And uh, our lives as FBI agents certainly changed that day we became much more intelligence focused rather than just reactive focused. Uh, we obviously turned our sights at those who wanted to destroy our people and our country. The FBI is a great agency and, and we do great things, I think. And, and um, uh, But in order to shift missions and to shift our focus onto this new target, it, it takes time. It's, it's, not like, uh, it's not like turning a bicycle on a, on a dime uh, as this was gearing up, you know, we had to, you know, develop assets. We had to develop human sources. We had to develop uh, everything investigatively to to tackle this problem. So uh, that was the fear of, you know, we didn't want to. We were in the protection business at that time, and we didn't want another attack. So we did whatever we could, you know, investigatively and. And, and we put people on it. We put uh, very, very experienced on it everywhere and every division. That was the number one priority uh, because this showed how vulnerable we were as a country. And uh, uh, we were going we were going to do everything we can to prevent another one. The new normal was our number one priority was was counterterrorism. That was it and preventing the next attack, period. Uh, you know, we certainly had our other crime problems to deal with. Um, uh, you know, we had a counter, we had counterintelligence, which is all classified as well. But uh, the uh, the rest of the mission just had to go forward. But 
more assets were diver diverted to to this. And um, uh, we had an intelligence component that was affiliated with every office and we staffed it. So uh, everything changed there. And then we had all these new tools uh, to use that the Patriot Act had, had given us. And then we started using more uh, anything we could really to make sure that we, we were ahead of the game. So, and I, I certainly appreciate that they, a memorial was built for the victims, families, and friends, and uh, for the public to visit. Um, but after I left the scene in October, it was uh, my, my second and only visit there. Um, after I left in October of 2001, I have not gone back. And at this time, I have no plans to. And it's not to be disrespectful uh, but to me, it's a mass murder scene. I mean, they, they call it a memorial. Uh, to me, it's a mass murder scene. Uh, it's one of the world's worst mass murders collectively in modern history for that day, uh, especially for, uh, obviously for the United States. And I distinctly remember how it was that day and while, with all of its horrendous sights and smells. And it still evokes sadness and anger, as I said before, toward those who committed the crimes and certainly sadness for the families and victims. They still have to live through this. And I've witnessed mass killings and homicides, and, and I've seen a lot as a paramedic and, and, and law enforcement. And uh, I've worked with crimes against children, including kidnappings and even killings. And I've returned to many of those scenes. But uh, the enormity of this event and this scene far exceeds anything that I witnessed. And I understand that the memorial is quite beautiful and I've seen a picture or two and, and it's located in a peaceful setting, that's fine. Um, and, and I think it's great that it's there, but I don't want that to overshadow or lessen the edge of my memory with its horror and killing. That's I wanna remember that. And I want that as my freshest memory. So uh, I have no plans to return. And then after 9-11, we obviously changed. The events that day eventually led to my volunteering to serve in Afghanistan. Uh, I went there in 2008 for my first tour, and my, I, I returned again in 2011 for my second tour. Um, and, and to me, it was one thing to work uh, and to do our work uh, in the FBI, uh, protecting the country and investigating crimes and terrorism from within our country. There's a, it, was, it was gratifying though, to be right on the front doorstep in Afghanistan of those responsible for 9-11, right there in Afghanistan and contribute to the country's efforts rather than the comparative comfort of working in the United States. So I was humbled and honored uh, to be selected for deployment and uh, work with really some of the finest FBI agents and, and military uh, uh, folks under very difficult conditions. It's a war zone. And I figured the Flight 93 passengers and crew gave their lives to start the battle with these criminals and this, this, this group and the others. So the least I could do would be to raise my hand and do my part where the attacks originated. So that prompted me to go to Afghanistan a couple of times. Serving in Afghanistan as a result of 9-11 showed me how really lucky 
we are in the United States. Uh, that's one of the poorest countries in the world. And the poverty of that country of Afghanistan is difficult to grasp unless you see it and hear it and smell it and live it. So I spent a lot of time there. And as, for example, as I left, as I left the airstrip um, after I arrived on my second tour, I was headed into where I'd be quartered. And uh, we went past a man on the road who was obviously dead. Uh, there's just, and no one cared. I mean, there's other cars and people walking around. I mean, he was treated as a roadkill squirrel in the United States. No one cared. Uh, and the people there are just numbed by death and war. And the only thing that that country has known for decades is just war, death, and destruction. And it just showed me how lucky we are to live in the country where we are. And the other thing that it, that that's, uh, it showed me is that just one man, one man, Osama bin Laden in this case, one man with money, and he didn't even make it. He got it from his father. But one man with money and resultant power can upset the world and our country and all of our institutions. One man. And one man can convince people that they are disaffected and convince them to pursue and even die, even die for a twisted cause. In this case, it was a false narrative about Islam. Um, and I think the lesson for all of us is that the exercise of power and leadership is not to satisfy the ego or a twisted vision of one man or even one movement. If it's religious or political, we can't let that happen ever. So we have to be watchful, ever watchful for those who serve only themselves and not the collective good of all as leaders, both externally and internally. Uh, so, and when I was in Afghanistan in 2011, bin Laden was killed. It was, I recalled, uh, I was at the, the uh, embassy in, in Kabul that day. The ambassador in Kabul uh, at the embassy uh, brought all the Americans together in, in a location in the embassy where he could do a little public uh, presentation. And uh, he announced what happened. And it was, it was really, it was a good day. It was a great day. But the threats re remained. And that's kind of how things have gone up to uh, the end of my career was 2011. I had stayed an extra couple of years uh, beyond mandatory retirement uh, to work on a uh, homicide of one of our agents, Sam Hicks, who was killed in the line of duty in 2008 at the very end of my uh, my first deployment to Afghanistan. So. Uh, I left service in December of 2011. My service time spanned a little over 27 years. And uh, so I was retired for about eight hours. And then I commenced work with uh, the uh, district attorney's office of Allegheny County as a, as a trial attorney. So I worked there for uh, less than a year. Uh, and then I was uh, recruited by 3M company uh, to work in corporate compliance as a compliance attorney in St. Paul. So I ret returned to the Twin Cities area and worked there for about, uh, I was on my fifth year where uh, a position came open in my current company, it's Bumblebee Seafoods, uh, shelf-stable seafood company. 
uh, located in San Diego, California, where I am now. And so since 2016, I've been the chief compliance officer and um, also corporate counsel for Bumblebee Seafoods. And that's where I am today.